Good morning and welcome to Bachelor Creek. We are so glad that you are joining us for worship today. For those of you joining us in the room, those of you who are joining us online, thanks for being here. Uh, if you have your Bibles, open them up to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1 is where we'll be in just a moment. What an incredible Easter celebration we had last Sunday. Uh, more than 1,200 people gathered together to worship uh, our risen Lord. And we want to continue that today, uh, Hebrews chapter 1. WWJD, what would Jesus do? We've probably all heard that phrase before. I think it's a good question to ask. If you are a child of the 90s, you probably had a WWJD bracelet. You might be interested to know that it all started with a youth group leader in Holland, Michigan. Her name was Janie Tinkleberg. And in the mid-90s, she began a grassroots movement to help the teenagers in her group remember the phrase. And so she made these woven WWJD bracelets, and the students loved them. They became a hit, and they quickly spread in popularity across the globe. So show of hands, how many of you ever owned or do own a WWJD bracelet? A lot of hands. My hand's up too. I definitely did. Well, as important as that question is, we rarely stop to consider what Jesus is doing right now. We remember his death, burial, and resurrection. That's what Easter was all about. And we know that after his resurrection that he ascended to the Father, and we know that he's coming again one day. But we don't really consider what he's doing right now. And that's what we want to unpack together over the next four weeks. But before we look at what Jesus is doing, we have to understand who Jesus is. So we're going to begin in Hebrews chapter 1. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Hebrews 1, beginning in verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. One of the major pastoral and theological concerns of the book of Hebrews is this issue of endurance in the Christian life. The original Christian audience that the author of Hebrews is writing to in the mid-first century AD faced some kind of persecution. And this persecution was persuading some of them to turn away from following Jesus. This was likely a Jewish Christian audience. That is, these are Christians who had converted out of a Jewish background. And they were experiencing some, some social marginalization. And they may have feared something more severe. Maybe something like martyrdom lay on the horizon. And so because of that, some of the original readers of the letter were ready to throw in the towel on Christ and, and return to their former lives in Judaism. They were ready to go back to the Old Covenant, the Old Testament system of, of temple sacrifices. Now, previously, they had embraced those systems that, theologically speaking, had been rendered obsolete by the work of Jesus. 
But, but those old systems wouldn't have caused as much waves as their commitment to following Jesus would have. And so faced with these pressures to turn away from Christ, to, to renege on their commitment to Christ, to live as if Christ really hadn't accomplished anything, the author of Hebrews presses his readers to stay the course, to recognize that the goal of everything in the Old Covenant system of bloody sacrifices had arrived in Jesus' priestly ministry. So don't turn back on Christ. Don't return to, to shadows and types when the incarnate reality is there to behold by faith. Now, I'm pretty certain that none of us have ever been pressured to, to throw aside Christ for the sake of, of temple sacrifices. Yet we do often face an equal and opposite temptation to go beyond Christ. Whether it's because we fear being marginalized or we fear being ridiculed or we fear being excluded by others. Or maybe it's because we don't see how the Bible really addresses the pressing issues in our day. Perhaps we've been persuaded in our Christian walk one time or another to go beyond Christ, to live our lives as if the fullness of the revelation in the Old and New Testament that collectively bears witness to the person of Jesus offers nothing more than some outdated ethic that no reasonable person would ever accept. To live and act as if Christ, and, and in particular the Word of God where we encounter Jesus, is just simply good advice. It's good advice along the lines of other philosophies of our day. We think it's a good book, but, but there's no way that it's God's book. You see, friends, what both of these approaches to Christ and his word have in common, the approach that stops short of Christ and the approach that goes beyond Christ is the belief that Christ is deficient. Both approaches share the common assumption that, that there's something that's lacking in Christ. There's, there's something lacking in the fullness of the revelation that testifies to Jesus in the Old and New Testament. And so whatever ways we might be persuaded to, to set aside Christ in our lives, whatever pressures that, that you and I face to cave in, what we need to hear is exactly what the original readers of Hebrews needed to hear. And that is the absolute supremacy of God's Son and the absolute sufficiency of his word. It is a word that reaches its completion, its fullness, its fulfillment in Jesus, God's son. So here's our big idea this morning. God has spoken definitively in his son. That's what this passage is all about. In this text, we are confronted above all else to behold the son of God by faith. To recognize that in whatever we face in life, Christ really is worth it. That Christ is the amen to all the promises of God throughout the scriptures. And to trust that his word really is sufficient to tackle the most pressing issues of our day. In particular, we are challenged to behold the Son of God in three ways in this text. Number one, behold the Son as the completion of Revelation. When our passage opens up, the author offers up a proposition that nearly everyone among his original readers would have agreed to. But nevertheless, it's a proposition that remains extraordinary. We read in verse 1, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. 
Now, right off the bat, we learn something about this God that we worship. Namely, that we worship a speaking God. A God who voluntarily and intentionally took the initiative in many times throughout history to communicate with his people divine truth so that you and I might know him. While our minds in themselves could never reach in the infinite depths of God, and while there's no possible way that we could reason our way towards God, God willingly and voluntarily revealed himself in history to created humans like you and me. When we open up our Bibles, we see God voluntarily reveal himself from the very beginning of history. In the Garden of Eden, in the book of Genesis, Adam didn't have to engage in in any sort of existential self-reflection about his own existence or about the God who created him in the world. No, from, from the very beginning, God met with Adam and Eve in the garden. He spoke with his creatures. He revealed his will for them to walk in. And then later after Adam, we we find that God even speaks to Noah. He speaks to Abraham, to Moses, and to David. He speaks to the rest of the prophets. He he speaks in different periods, and and progressively he reveals more of himself and, and more of his will in each of these periods. He also spoke, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, in various ways. To some, God spoke through angels. To others, he spoke through visions and dreams. And as each prophet received revelation from God, what what did he do? Well, he wrote it down. They wrote down what God communicated to preserve the spirit-inspired words of God, which we have recorded for us in the Old Testament scriptures. So friends, understand that when we come to God, when we come before him, the God who calls us into worship, it is a God who speaks to his church. He spoke to his fathers through the prophets and he still speaks to us today. Not in the sense of giving us new revelation, but by his spirit, which illuminates the words that are written down and preserved for us in the scriptures. We don't look under a rock to find God. We don't even look into ourselves to find God. If we do that, we're only going to find a God made in our own image. Instead, we look to God's word. And in God's word, we meet God, we know God. As remarkable as it is that God would speak, that God has spoken to us, that God still speaks to us through the Old Testament scriptures, the words of the prophets that our author alludes to here, they are still in themselves incomplete. Because the words of the prophets look forward to new revelation. They look forward to a new covenant. And so the author continues in in verse 2, that while God spoke long ago at many times and in various ways in the prophets and what we now know as the Old Testament, in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. In the person and the work of Jesus and all that Jesus has accomplished, we have God's final word. See, Jesus and his apostles complete the words of the prophets. The New Testament scriptures complete the Old Testament and complete God's revelation for his church. Here's what verse 2 says. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. 
Notice in our passage that God's revelation in and through his son is accomplished in these last days. So there's this conclusive character to this revelation in his son. And when you encounter this phrase in the New Testament, in the last days, this is not a reference to something that, that still lies in the future. The days we live in, the days between Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming, these are the two poles that we live between. And these are what is understood as the last days. And so we are living in the last days right now just as much as the apostles were. As one scholar put it, these last days isn't a commentary on the length of time that remains until Christ comes again as much as it is a commentary on the quality of time in which we live in. The last day signals that there's no more redemptive work required until Christ comes again to make all things new. And that has implications for how you and I understand the sufficiency of Scripture. We need to understand that because God has already spoken in these last days by his Son, there is no new revelation, there's no new word from the Lord that we should expect beyond the Scriptures. The Old Testament and the New Testament leave nothing unsaid that's left to be said until Jesus comes again. Divine revelation has been completed in and through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And it is to that revelation, the fullness of that revelation in the Old and New Testament, that we, as the people of God, are called to look, to know God, and to hear God's voice speak authoritatively to his church. So do not stop short of the fullness of that revelation, but don't go beyond that revelation either. As we come to our second point, we learn why Jesus is the fullness and the completion of God's revelation. That's because the Son who speaks is also himself the fullness of the glory of God. So point two, behold the Son as the fullness of God's glory. One of the things that really jumps out in the Greek text of this passage is how intricately structured these verses are, how well written they are. Hebrews is generally thought of to have the best written Greek in all of the, all of the New Testament, and this is certainly the case here. A second feature is how theologically rich these four verses are. There's so much packed in here. If you look at the structure of this passage, you'll see that it drives us to the center, to the end of verse 2 and the beginning of verse 3. And there the author takes us into the mystery of the inner life of God. In church, this is why Jesus is the completion and the fullness of the revelation spoken by the prophets. Because in Jesus, we learn what is the fullness of the glory of God. As verse 3 tells us, he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. Now, to help us think of this divine son relationship, our author uses two metaphors from nature. The first is of the radiance of light in its source. Now, as scholars point out, while you can distinguish light from its source, whatever lights you're talking about, you can't separate the two. If, for instance, I had a flashlight and I were to flash th this light upon you, 
you could distinguish between the rays of light that are shining and the flashlight itself. Yet, as long as the flashlight is on and long as it's working properly, you, you couldn't really separate the two. You couldn't really separate the source from its light. And so it goes with the Father and the Son. The Father and the Son remain two distinct persons, but they share in the same essence and the same nature. The second image in our text is that of an imprint or a representation. If you think of the imprint on the face of a coin, which mirrors the stamp when it's pressed down upon on a piece of metal, and it leaves an exact representation on the face of the coin, well, just as you can distinguish between the two, the, the stamp that, that presses down on the piece of metal and leaves an imprint, and the coined imprint on the coin itself, nevertheless, they, they still share the exact same imprint. And so it goes with the Father and the Son. The point that our author is making in this is that the Son of God is no less than the Father. Although each person in the Godhead can be distinguished. After all, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father. And the Father, Son, and Spirit remain three separate persons. Nevertheless, they share in the same essence, the same nature, the same glory. Again, both the Father and the Son are completely equal in being. Contrary to what the early church heretic Arius said, there was never a time when the Son was not. So from eternity past, before the earth was created, the Son, who was equal in glory and power with the Father, has his sonship eternally from the Father, yet never apart from the Father. Now, if you need to take a deep breath right now, and if all of this seems a little confusing, a little bit mysterious, there's a simple explanation for it. It is. <laughs> it very much is. God is the incomprehensible one. And although he graciously reveals to us glimpses into the inner depths of his divine life, we do not, and we cannot know him completely. When we begin to understand the nature of the Son of God in this way, then it's really no surprise to us why the author of Hebrews attaches Jesus to God's works in creation. First, in Hebrews 1-2, we, we learn that through the Son, God created the world. The Apostle Paul reflects on the same kind of thing in Colossians 1, verse 16. He writes, For in him, Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So just as we noted, every external work of the Godhead involves all three persons in that work, Father, Son, and Spirit. And the same thing is true in creation. And then we learn that God's works of providence are also belong to the Son. Hebrews tells us that he sustains the universe by his powerful word. Colossians 3 says that he is before all things, and in him, in Jesus... All things hold together. All things, friends, are sustained and directed towards a particular ordained end 
according to the eternal will of God in and through Jesus. A New Testament scholar, F.F. Bruce, writes, Jesus upholds the universe, not like Atlas supporting a dead weight on his shoulders, but as one who carries all things forward on their appointed course. So see that, that all of these, the, the big theological word, all of the Christological realities in this text, that they plunge us into the inner life of God, and then they move us outward into the external works of God in creation. They explain to us why Jesus is so much better than the prophets, why the, the revelation revealed in and through the Son is more complete and fuller and more definitive, and this is why. Do not miss this. Because in the Son of God, we have God himself. In Jesus Christ, we look upon the face of God through faith. In the work of this sinless, perfect, spotless Son of God, a victory was won for our salvation, a victory that could not have been accomplished any other way. This week, I was reminded of a particular story from World War II. On August 15, 1945, at the very end of the Pacific Theater in World War II, the Emperor of Japan, Emperor Hirohito, did two things that were unprecedented in, in, Japan, in Japanese history and culture. First, in the Japanese Shinto religious tradition, for centuries, the Emperor of Japan has been considered a divine figure, a divine-like monarch. And, and one of the implications of this national theology of Japan at the time was that the emperor's voice was rarely, if ever, heard in a public setting. It was too transcendent to be heard by the masses in public. In fact, before August 15, 1945, the public had never heard the emperor's voice over the radio waves. On that day, the emperor, a person who believed himself to be divine and was believed by the people to be divine, he broke that precedent, and he addressed the nation of Japan himself. Not by messengers, not by servants, but by himself over the radio waves. Now, here's the second thing he did that was unprecedented in Japanese history and culture. The message that this divine monarch communicated wasn't what one might have expected to hear from a supposed God, because he issued a message of unconditional surrender. It was a call for the people of Japan to endure the unendurable and lay down their arms. When this supposed divine monarch, a person considered transcendent above all peoples in Japan, spoke, he issued a message of defeat. And what you need to know today is when our Lord Jesus the eternal Son of God in human flesh, when he spoke in these last days to the people of God, he did not issue a message of defeat calling for his people to surrender. But he gave a message of victory. A message that through himself, redemption has been accomplished and the forces of sin and the forces of death and the forces of the devil had been defeated. And he did this for us by becoming for us the perfect mediator and the perfect prophet, priest, and king. This leads us to our third and final point, that we should behold the Son as prophet, priest, and king. 
So we've learned that revelation reaches its climax, its culmination in the Son of God. We also learn that, that in his work of redemption, the Son is for us our perfect mediator, the perfect prophet, priest, and king. In the Old Testament, these were the three offices that God had set apart for the nation of Israel. In the Old Testament, there were prophets like Moses and Elijah and Isaiah. They were called to speak the truth of God's will. God gave them his authority, so they spoke God's voice. That's why so often when we read the scriptures, the prophets often begin by saying, thus says the Lord. Then there were priests who were called to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people to God in order to satisfy God's wrath. Then there were kings who, subject to the Lord, ruled and governed the people according to the law. They defended Israel from all of her enemies. And when we come to the New Testament, we learn that Jesus, the Son of God, occupies perfectly these three offices. First, according to his prophetic ministry, the New Testament teaches that Jesus is the prophet to whom all of the other prophets looked. A prophet like Moses, but one who was better than Moses. A prophet who perfectly represents the Lord and who he is and what he does. Because again, he is by nature the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of who he is, both before and after his incarnation. So in both word and deed, Jesus perfectly and authoritatively reveals to us in Scripture God's will for his church. Second, as it pertains to his priestly ministry, Jesus is the great high priest. In the words of verse 3, he had provided puri purification for sins. Jesus offered something better than the blood of bulls and goats that the original readers were tempted to return to. He offered a better sacrifice for us. And then what did he do? He sat down. You see, the Levitical priest in the Old Covenant, they stood daily. We're told later in Hebrews chapter 10 that the priest stood daily to offer the sacrifices in the tabernacle and the temple. It was this sort of endless cycle on repeat every day of every year. We learn that Jesus is the great high priest who offered a single sacrifice for sin, and then he sat down, which indicates perfection and completion. From that high heavenly position, our Lord Jesus, he now also intercedes for our church, for us. Continually, he is praying for us. And then finally, as it relates to his kingly office, Jesus is the one who rules, guides, protects, and governs his church. Now, in one sense, Jesus has always been king by virtue of being the son, by virtue of sharing in the divine being. From all eternity, he has possessed royal power over all creation that belongs to God. Ever since creation, the Son has exercised his rule as king. And then it's in the incarnation that Jesus was revealed to the world as king. A king before whom every knee in heaven and earth should bow. And now, he is a king who reigns. He reigns in heaven, he rules, and he defends us. So you have to remember this. 
You, you have to remember this. When, when life seems out of control, when, when life seems chaotic, you have to remember that we have a God who is in control. He is ruling and reigning in King Jesus. The one we behold, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who for us is the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, and the perfect king. So what should we take away from this passage? Let me quickly offer three applications. Number one, don't look further for divine revelation. Don't look for further divine revelation. Uh, this is further emphasized in Hebrews 1-2. God has spoken in these last days through his Son. There is no further revelation. Through his apostles, we have been given the New Testament Scriptures to complete the Old Testament revelation and to close out God's revelation for his church. Therefore, there is no more word from the Lord that we could receive outside of this book. We no longer have apostles, we no longer have prophets because God has spoken conclusively, definitively in these last days through his son. Now, of course, that does not mean that the spirit is no longer at work. Absolutely, the Holy Spirit regularly illuminates the Scriptures to us every time we read them and study them and we encounter Jesus in them. The Holy Spirit draws out fresh application for us in whatever situation we find ourselves in life. And the Spirit of God drives us to a conviction of our sins. He convicts us of whatever sin that we find ourselves entangled in. And the Holy Spirit continually uses the ministry of the Word to draw us and to draw others to Jesus. So don't mistake me saying that the Spirit isn't at work because the Spirit of God is very much at work. Just not in the sense of speaking fresh revelation. Only the Bible is the final authority for us. It is sufficient to guide us, to lead us in all righteousness and knowledge of the Lord. So that's our first point. Look to the Scriptures. Don't look beyond them. Second, Scripture is authoritative and relevant to address today's pressing issues. If God wrote this book, if he's responsible for every word that's in it, then the Bible is both enduringly relevant and supremely authoritative. Scripture is, is relevant to guide us and to navigate us in the most pressing issues of the day, whatever they may be. Scripture is authoritative to speak into those very same issues. If these are the words of the eternal, timeless, omniscient, only wise God, why would we expect anything else when we come to this book? Now, that doesn't mean that they give us step-by-step -step detailed instructions to navigate politics or mental health or racial tensions or addiction. Yet they do address the very fundamental reason for the brokenness that we see in our lives and in the world. And they hold before our eyes Jesus as the king who's the only hope for the sin and misery we experience this side of eternity. So read up on the other issues of our day. Offer solution to those issues, but whatever you do, do not toss aside the Bible as if it's not relevant, as if it's not authoritative to address the most pressing issues of the day, because it very much is. And third and finally, marvel at the Lord who speaks. St. Anselm, about a thousand years ago, famously remarked, we believe you are a being than which nothing greater can be conceived. Friends, while we can never fully comprehend the infinite God, 
God has truly revealed himself through his word. So as much as we come to this word, which is authoritative and relevant to direct us where to go, as much as we come to this word to help us navigate this situation or that situation, to know where to turn for guidance or what to believe about this situation, come regularly to the word as well to simply marvel at the God who speaks to us. Let us marvel at the God who speaks to us. Let us marvel at the Son who stands as the only mediator between us and God. Let's marvel at him today. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are amazed by you. And Lord, right now we just take a moment to marvel at your majesty, to reflect on your greatness. God, it's humbling. It's humbling to know that you are a God who has revealed yourself to us. You are a God who speaks. And you have spoken to us through your son, Jesus. And God, whatever we do in our life, I pray that we would be a people who make much of Christ. That we would understand that Christ is supreme. That he is the word of God made flesh. God, that he lived, he died, he rose again. He ascended to sit at your right hand and he now intercedes for us. We marvel at that. God, I pray that through your word, we would come to know you more and more. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for listening to today's message from Bachelor Creek Church. If you made a decision today or would like to talk with one of our pastors, text the word Jesus to 260-215-4334. Or you can call the church office at 260-563-4109. We would love to talk with you and we'd love to help you on your journey with Jesus. Thanks again.